Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons Podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message, you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Morning, welcome in person, welcome online, good to see you all. Hello, good well, morning. Thank you. Pretend it's romper rooms, humour me, okay. Good to see you all here. Okay, so this morning I'm going to be continuing on with the second part of our vision series where I'm kind of laying out the picture of the type of church that we are in the process of becoming. Now last week we talked about, we're going to be the sort of church that sets a bigger table and by that I mean the sort of church where anyone and everyone can not only feel welcomed, but actually belong. This week, I want to talk about a better story. Being the sort of church that has a better story to tell, and the two things are quite closely connected because I think the only reason you'll ever need a bigger table is if you learn how to tell a better story. And we see this particularly in the life of Jesus, right? When he was walking around on the earth doing his ministry, he was never short of a crowd, was he? In contrast to the religious leaders and the religious establishment of his day where you kind of couldn't pay people to go. Aren't you glad things have changed these days? Yeah? Okay. But he was never short of a crowd. And part of the reason for that was, of course, you know, the miracles that he did. A lot of people were very desperate and they wanted what he had to offer, so people would come, tens, hundreds, thousands sometimes, But they also came to listen to what he was talking about as well. They were enthralled by his teaching. It says that, um, you know, Jesus taught not as one with authority, not like their teachers of the law. There was a qualitative difference about the way that Jesus taught. And it wasn't just in the way that he taught, it it was what he taught. It was the content as well. And it differed again so much from what they were hearing from the religious leaders of the day and the religious establishment of the day. Jesus was talking about a God that they hadn't really heard of. He was this sort of God that, that liked them and that would go out of his way to find them. He's the sort of God that would turn a house upside down to find a lost coin that represented them. He was the sort of God who would leave 99 sheep behind and go and look for the one that had gone missing. He was the sort of God who would actually welcome home a son who had betrayed him and restore him to full sonship. He was that type of God. And he was talking about a kingdom they'd never heard of either, a kingdom where everything was topsy-turvy and upside down, so different to the society and the world and the religious world in which they lived. And to them, when they heard this, it was good news as compared and contrasted with the things that the religious leaders were saying. So we've got to ask ourselves, why aren't we seeing the same sort of response that Jesus saw? Why Why aren't people keen to hear the story that we've got to tell? Well, I want to suggest it's probably... In part, there are probably a bunch of reasons, but at least in part, one of those reasons is that we have the same problem that the religious leaders of the day had and that we're not telling a particularly good story. And that the story that we do have to tell and the story that we are fleshing out in everything that we do, it's not coming across as good news to people. Now, at the risk of sounding like a heretic, which I do occasionally around here, as you will well know, okay, I'm going to suggest that that, in fact, is actually the problem that we have, that that the story that we're telling is, it's not a good story and it's not good news and it's certainly not being heard like that. Despite our best intentions, it's not coming across as good news. 
And I want to go even further and say that the story that we're telling isn't necessarily even the gospel. I know we're told that it is, but I'm going to suggest to you that maybe it's not. The thing that we say is the gospel, the the good news, we have this kind of truncated version of it, a truncated version of the gospel. And in reality, it's what we call, and I'm not going to get too technical here, and I'm certainly not going to bang on about it, I'm just going to mention it in passing. It's called an atonement theory. Specifically, this atonement theory is called penal substitutionary atonement. Bring that up at lunch with someone, okay? Hey, do you want to discuss penal substitutionary atonement? Sure, I'm just going to get a cup of coffee. Okay. What we mean by that, and you'll know it, is this. This is it in a nutshell, and this is what we equate with the gospel. God punished Jesus in our place. Jesus was killed so that we didn't have to be, right? That's what it is. That's penal substitutionary atonement. But here's here's a newsflash. It's only one of five major atonement theories, things that people have devised to help us understand and to explain the mystery of what took place on the cross. But what has happened, over time, this has become the gospel. We sing about it all the time. We talk about it like it is gospel. I've breached it myself many, many times. It's become synonymous with the gospel, and yet it is only an atonement theory, one of five. But to say that, and to say, actually, I'm not so sure that's necessarily the gospel, is to sound like a heretic. And here I stand today, in for a penny, in for a pound. Because I'm going to suggest to you that there is another story, a better story, one that's more closely aligned with the message that Jesus preached, one that's more closely aligned with the message that the apostles preached and the early church preached. And to aid me this morning, I'm going to tell both of those stories side by side so you can compare and contrast and decide for yourself, okay? I'm not here to convince you of anything. I'm going to present something and I'm going to leave it with you to do the wrestling. Does that sound fair? Okay, so in order to help me, today I've become a prop comic, and I'm using these very high-tech props. Now, this idea is not original. I did not come up with this. This has been around for a while. A number of people do it, um, and I'm, there's slightly different versions of it, and the version that I really liked and I'm sort of borrowing heavily from this morning It's from a theologian called Brad Jerzak. So no credit to me, all credit to him in that. And very simply, these two chairs will be representative of two main things in this story. One is us and our condition. The second is God and his position. You right? You with me? What's this one? Well done. And this one? Go to the top of the class, you people. Okay. Well done. All right, let's see if I can do this, balancing a microphone and not falling over, all right? So in this first telling of the story, and I'm just going to use the story as a shorthand for the gospel, right? You with me on that? In this telling of the the story, there's a very, very heavy legal theme, all right? And in this telling of the story, the story is, the narrative is all about a crime that needs to be punished, a debt that needs to be paid, That's the theme that is running through all of this. And this is the version we're most familiar with. This is the thing we will all recognise at first hearing. So it kind of goes like this. In the beginning, God creates the world. Okay, God creates the world. And in the world, he places a garden. And in that garden, he places humankind. He places 
Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are placed in this garden and here they are to live in complete, perfect harmony and communion with God. They are to be stewards of all creation. They are to be image bearers of God and representatives of God into the world. With me? What happens? Well, we know the story. The unthinkable happens. They decide, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. And they sin. And they turn away from God. Well, in their turning away from God, in the telling of this story, God then turns away from them and they are banished from the garden. And then, but God, see, he's not about to, he's not prepared to just give up on the whole plan. He's not just prepared to write everything off. And so he implements a rescue program and a series of covenants through which he is going to establish a people and ultimately a person to bring everything back to the way it should be. And so God raises up a guy called Abraham and then Moses and then David and then the people of Israel and he makes these covenants with them. But time and time again, invariably, they stuff it up. They muck it up and they turn away from God. And in this story, God turns away from them. And when God turns away from them, all they are subject to is the futility of sin and death that Adam and Eve were subject to and the penalties and punishments and plagues and invasions and exiles. You've read the Old Testament, anyone? Every time they turn away, God turns away from them and it is immediately followed by punishment. And every now and again, they're bright enough to realise, hey, every time we do this, trouble inevitably follows. Maybe we should turn back to God. So they turn back to God time and time and time again. But every time they do, it always turns out to be very short-lived, right? Very short-lived. And it always turns out to be empty, meaningless words and religion. Again, God has not given up on, on the whole thing. And so what he does is he sends his son in the form of a man, a human, as one of us, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Jesus lives... A perfect life in harmony with God. He is without sin. He is human, but he is without sin. He is perfectly obedient. So he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And because he is this person, he is taking our place. And then God does the unthinkable. He puts Jesus on a cross to bear all our sin and all our shame. Jesus goes to the cross and takes our punishment instead of us. And because he is bearing all our sin and all our shame, there comes a point where the Father cannot look at him anymore and turns his back on him and pours out all the wrath that was supposed to be poured out on us gets poured out on Jesus on that cross. And Jesus goes down into death. But because he is who he says he is, because he is the perfect, sinless, perfectly obedient son of God, God vindicates him by raising him from the dead. And now we're told that if we will believe in him, if we will trust in his sacrifice on our behalf, we too can be reconciled with God and live in harmony with God forever. But if we reject and resist this love, this mercy, this grace, and we turn from God, in this story, God turns from us. 
And we are again subject to everything that follows from there. But if we turn to God, God will always turn to us. But if we again reject and resist that love and that grace, God will again turn from us. And we will not only be turned from God in this life, if we die and go down into the grave, we are eternally separated from the love of God. You with me? That's the story. Do you recognise it? Okay. So that's the story we've been telling for ages. And there are some real strengths to that story. God is taking care of sin through Jesus. Jesus is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Um, His sacrifice has made it possible for us to be in a relationship with God. But there are a couple of glitches with this particular story, a couple of things that don't particularly meld with other parts of the overall narrative. And the first is this, that it pits God against us. The kind of starting point for this, and it varies, there's a bit of a spectrum on this, is that God really isn't happy with us. That's at the weak end of the spectrum. It progresses up to the, to the point where God is actually at enmity with us. And some people would even go so far as to say, God hates us. Now, where do we get this idea from? Well, we get it from a cut-and-paste approach to reading the Bible that creates a faulty syllogism. Now, there's a tweetable quote right there, okay? Did you all get that? A cut-and-paste approach to the Bible that creates a faulty syllogism. Who knows what a syllogism is? Okay, here's a syllogism. Uh, A table has four legs, my dog has four legs, therefore my dog is a table. Right? That's a syllogism. Okay. This particular syllogism goes like this. God hates sin and cannot look upon it. We sin and are sinners, therefore God hates and cannot look upon us. Are you with me? Now, where do we get this from? Well, again, a cut-and-paste approach to the Bible. The first is we take out little, little passages of Scripture from places like Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.13, where it says this, Lord, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil, too righteous to look upon sin. It sounds, there it is, that settles it, right? Okay, God, your eyes are too uh, pure to look upon evil, too righteous to look upon sin. God cannot look upon sin in and of itself that's it case closed but the problem is you you can't just take a verse out of context to make it say whatever you want it to say you've got to read the whole thing and if you go on and read the whole thing you'll find that in this particular uh, chapter of Habakkuk this is one of Habakkuk's complaints to God and Habakkuk is saying to God God your eyes are too pure to look upon evil and to look upon sin he then goes on to say so why do you and do nothing about it. So it's not that God cannot look upon sin. He can. Habakkuk's complaint is, you're looking at this. You're too holy and pure to look upon this kind of injustice and just leave it there and not do anything about it. So to just take the first verse out of context leaves us with a very faulty idea about God. A second example is taken from Isaiah 59 where it says, Your sin has separated you from God and your sins have have hidden his face from you. Again, it sounds like slam dunk. There it is. Our sin separates from God. God hides his face from us. But again, you have to read the whole thing. And it goes on to say that God sees that there is injustice everywhere. So again, God is not going, 
oh, that's all so horrible, I can't look upon it, I can't look upon it. God is seeing what's going on. He sees injustice and he's distressed that there is no one there who will do anything about it. And so it goes on to say, my own arm will work salvation and I will raise up a redeemer in Zion. So again, the point is not that God cannot look upon it, it's that God cannot look upon it and do nothing. Are you with me? Yeah? You all sound a little bit, sound a little bit shell-shocked this morning. You with me? All right? I was always taught at college that a text out of context is a proof text, right? And, and see, if you want to you make a point, you can always find a little piece of scripture in the Bible that you could cut out and back up your point. That's why we have to read everything around it and everything in context, okay? Because we take these things out of context, they become proof text and faulty premises, but that's where we get the idea that God hates us. We're sinners and God hates sin and he can't look upon us except through Jesus. Who's heard that one? When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Who's heard that? It's like he can't look at you. Martin Luther said, we are snow-covered dung. Lovely. You want that on a card? You are snow-covered dung. You're still crap, but you're sprinkled in snow. I wouldn't want to touch snow-covered crap, would you? But that's what Martin Luther said. We're snow-covered dung. The snow is Jesus covering up our fetid condition. Another uh, more prominent current theologian, contemporary theologian, says it like this. Jesus is our asbestos suit against the white-hot wrath of God. Mm, don't you just want to know that, God? I mean, he loves you, but he hates you so much that he would zap you into ashes if he could. But it's okay because Jesus is standing in the way. It's almost like good cop, bad cop, isn't it? It's a good cop, bad cop scenario, but that's just what this, the way we tell this story, that's what it gives us. The other problem is it pits, it pits God against Jesus. Now, we know on Good Friday when Jesus is on that cross and he's being crucified, he cries out at one point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't want to take anything away from Jesus and then that that was a very real cry because we're told that Jesus shared our humanity, right? He was every bit of human as much as you and I are and therefore subject to everything that humans are subject to. Hunger, thirst, tiredness, fear. He could feel despair, he could feel abandonment, he could feel pain and he was being murdered in the most excruciating way known to man at that time. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain was real but at no point did God ever turn his back on Jesus. Why do I say that? Well again, as per the last problem, we take a verse out of context, we end up with a pretext. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. It is a messianic psalm and it outlines in some detail what will happen on the cross that day. It talks about them gambling for his clothes, all of that sort of stuff, right? That happened on the Good Friday. Are you with me? Right? And in that psalm it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then if you read on, it goes to say this. He has not despised or scorned the affliction of the suffering one. He has not hidden his face from him, 
but have, has listened to his cry for help. That's verse 24. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hasn't. And there is an interaction on the cross, you will remember. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father says to him, I haven't. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It is done. And into your hands I commit my spirit. The other problem with pitting God against Jesus is you can't split up the band, right? You can't split up the Godhead, the Trinity. How many gods are there? How many people comprise that God? Okay, this is standard Orthodox Christian belief, right? One God in three persons. They are forever joined, forever in communion. There is never a point where they are separated. I'll take it even one further. Paul says that on Friday, God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world, right? Where was God on Friday? On the cross, not somewhere else demanding that someone else pay a price. He was on that cross reconciling the world to himself. So this idea that somehow Jesus is separated from God to this because of sin and the sin that separates us from God and God can't even look at it, this is something that we have woven into the story through taking a few texts out of, um, texts out of context and making it seem like that's just the way it is. Now, who's heard of C.S. Lewis? Okay. He wrote a few books, right? <laughs> the Narnia Chronicles, in particular, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anyone read that or seen the movie? Okay. The climactic scene is where the witch wants to kill Edmund. Now, Edmund's the one that's crossed over for the Turkish delight, right? Okay. Wants to kill Edmund. And Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ character, says, no, kill me instead. And the witch is like, sweet, because I, this is all, all I've ever wanted. She kills Aslan. Aslan rises from the dead and destroys the table of retribution, okay? Now, what C.S. Lewis was doing in that was bringing a slight correction to our understanding about who was demanding death on the cross, who was asking for death? Who was demanding death? The witch. The witch. God is not the witch, is he? God is not the witch in this story. Satan is the witch in this story. Satan demanded payment because he has the keys to death. He was the one who held us in fear for our lives because we were held in fear of death. This is how the story goes. But God is not the witch demanding the sacrifice. Jesus was sacrificed to manifest the forgiveness of God, not to appease his wrath. On that cross, Jesus broke the power of Satan, sin and death. By forgiving sin, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And God said, done. And death, by going down into death and then rising again. This is how he destroyed it and fixed those problems. I love what Brian Zahn said. He says, in Jesus, we see a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. What about this one? On the cross, Jesus absorbs human sin and defeats it by recycling it into forgiveness. And by going into death and rising, he conquers it. 
that's the first story with its glitches. Now I'm going to tell you the second story, and I'll try and push along a little bit here. I'm not sure how long I'm going. Anyway, in this second telling of the story, there's no legal theme. This is more a restorative theme, a healing theme. Sin is not a crime to be punished, a debt to be paid. It is a condition to be healed. And who knows that you don't punish a condition out of someone? Yeah? Has anyone had a condition punished out of them? No. You get healed out of this particular condition. So, let's go with it. Adam and Eve. Okay, we know the story. Adam and Eve are in the garden with God, living perfect harmony, blah, 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 blah. They, yeah, you know, just fast forwarding, just imagine a tape fast forwarding sound there. Um, okay, they stuff up and they go. Exiled. What does God do? In the telling of this story, I should have a hands free. God goes after them. God goes after them and begins to start a whole story of redemption. The first thing we see is that Cain, Cain, their child, he decides that um, he doesn't like his brother Abel and the way his brother Abel does things, so he decides to kill him, right? God comes to Cain and he says to him, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. And Cain, you know, but it doesn't have to be this way, mate. You don't have to go through with it. He doesn't listen to God, goes through, kills his brother and runs away. What does God do? God comes and finds Cain, doesn't he? Yeah? God comes and finds Cain and says to him, where's your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, you are your brother's keeper. I know exactly what's going on here. But instead of punishment, God puts a mark, a patriarchal mark on Cain's forehead, a sign that no one should take revenge or retribution on this murderer and sends him off east. Restoration, okay, in the first story. Then we have the story of Abram. God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to make a mighty nation through you, even though you and your wife are really past it and you can't do this anymore. They think, yeehaw, it looks like it's not going to happen. They decide they're going to help the plan along by Abram sleeping with his wife's much, much younger servant girl. Okay? Big stuff up. What does God do? God comes to Abram and he says... I know you took things into your own hands and it's been a bit of a kerfuffle, but anyway, here we are. I am still going to bless you with the child that I promised. And Sarai, Sarah falls pregnant with Isaac and Isaac is born. But beyond that, God blesses Ishmael. God blesses Ishmael, the mistake, if you like. And, and Hagar, her servant, is the first woman in the Bible, first person in the Bible that gets to name God. She says, I now know the God who sees me restoration again then God comes to a guy called Moses and says to him Moses I want to I want you to be the man to deliver my people I've heard their cries their oppression etc you're the guy that's going to come along and and relieve them of that Moses says fantastic I've got a great plan me off I go kills an Egyptian backfires spectacularly and has to run off and hide in the desert for 40 years I feel like I've had some of those plans right Hides in the desert for 40 years. What does God do? God comes to Moses and says to him, well, he comes in the shape of a bush that's burning and says to him, Moses, I want you to go back and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so again, restoration. 
God comes to a man called David. He makes a covenant with him. He's going to be the king after Saul. And he says to David, you're going to, never going to fail to have someone sit on the throne. Your lineage is going to go on. Your royal lineage is going on. You're never going to have someone rule over Israel. Never fail to have someone to rule over Israel. And David's a really good king up until one day when he should have been at war, but he wasn't. He's walking around on the roof of his house and he looks across at the neighbor's place and he sees Bathsheba having a bath on the roof. Personally, I think that's an architectural flaw, but there we go. <laughs> My neighbours never complain. It's because they're not looking. Um, he sees Bathsheba and one thing leads to another. And... Uh, David really wants Bathsheba, so much so to the point that she is married, so he has her husband Uriah put at the front of the battle so that he's killed. He, he essentially kills her husband so he can have her. And what does God do? God comes to David. They lose that child, but then their next child is who? Solomon. And in the lineage of Jesus. You'll never fail to have someone sit on the throne. Yours is a royal line forever. Restoration again. And then we have God just over and again coming to, coming to his people, making covenants with them, then breaking those covenants, and then God coming to them every time to say, if you will turn back to me, then I will. Never, ever, ever breaking those covenants. And then, of course, we get to the Jesus time. And we know the cross bit, but we leave out the life bit because this is the gospel, right? The gospel isn't this truncated version that just deals with the death of Jesus. The gospel is the story of Jesus, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Are you with me? It's the whole story of Jesus, his life and death, not just the death bit. And so here's a woman living up in Samaria. She's at a well in the middle of the day. She's at a well in the middle of the day because no one else wants to be around her when they normally go to draw water. She is an outcast in her own village. And the reason she's an outcast in her own village is because she's been married five times. Five times. And now the man she's with, it says, is not even her husband. The implication there is it's not her husband, but it could actually be someone else's husband. This is why people don't want to be around this woman. And what does God do? God in the form of Jesus comes and he sits down with her at the well and he says to her, I know your story. I also know something else about you. I know you're thirsty. I know you're looking for something. The problem is you're looking in all the wrong places and I've got the thing that you need. And she hears that and she accepts that. And she goes back, we're told, in, into her village and says, come and meet a man that told me everything that I ever did. And she goes and shares this with all the other Samaritans. And history tells us that this woman becomes someone known as Saint Fatina, the first evangelist and missionary to the Samaritans. And she was so full on, all her children became missionaries and evangelists as well. And every single one of them was killed by Nero for their faith. Restoration. Restoration. Then we have a pretty short guy who is... He's not just a tax collector, he's a traitor and a thief. He's a traitor to his own people because he works for the Roman occupation forces. He's a thief because when he comes to collecting their taxes, the taxes off his own people, he doesn't just take the taxes, he takes his cut as well. 
So he's a complete criminal, a complete outcast, a complete thief. He's not just turned his back on God, he's turned his back on his people as well. And one day in Jericho, he's up a tree. And what does God do? God comes to him and says, Zacchaeus, I need to go and have lunch at your place today. And he goes and has lunch at Zacchaeus' house. And what does Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them back and then with interest, and I'm going to give half of my money away to the poor. He does. Why? Because restoration has come. Then we see another woman. She's brought to Jesus and thrown down in front of him by the religious leaders because she's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we know this is a setup. This whole thing has been set up to trap Jesus. This is what it's about. They've gone and found this woman, they throw her down, and they say to Jesus, right, we have to kill this woman. Moses said that you have to stone people like this to death. The Bible says... Again, do you see the problem with sometimes just taking verses out of context sometimes and reading them without a broader understanding? We don't stone people these days, do we? Okay, someone wants to be stoned, is that? (laughs) Metaphorically we do. Okay, this woman deserves to be stoned. The Bible tells us to kill her. What do you say, Jesus? And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, sure, one condition. Only someone, only people who haven't done anything wrong can throw the first stone. So everyone filters off. And Jesus, while, they, while they're there, he bends down and he just draws in the dust. And then he looks at this woman and he says, where are your accusers? They're all gone. Is there no one left to condemn you? Nope. Then neither do I condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. Now, again, we you've got to be careful how you... Remember we talked about reading the Bible and the voices, the the narration that we do? How we, you know, because we're not listening to an audio book or we're not listening to it live, we narrate the story with the inflection and the tone and the emphasis that we think it should have. Sometimes we hear that story like, go and leave your life of sin or something else might happen to you. You know what I mean? It's like, go now and stop doing this. No, 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 no. It's more a case of go now. Stop living like this. You don't need to do this anymore. Again, restoration, restoration. Then we find another man. He's in a region of the Gerasenes. He's so out of his mind, so demon-possessed that he has to be chained up in a cemetery for the safety of everyone else around him and probably for his own safety. He's so nuts he can't even wear clothes. No one will go near this guy whatsoever. But Jesus sets foot in that part of the world and he gets out of a boat and he encounters this guy and instead of treating him the same way that everyone else treats him Jesus comes to this man and puts him into his right mind he sets him free and this man is so overjoyed at being set free that he says Jesus I'm going to come and follow you for the rest of my life and Jesus says no don't follow me but go and tell everyone what I've done for you again restoration then finally we have the Sanhedrin the religious body who plotted and to kill Jesus. We have Pilate, who was willing for the sake of political expediency to have Jesus killed. We have the Roman occupation forces that are carrying out the execution and the religious leaders who are coming there to watch him be executed that day. All of them opposed to Jesus. All of them wanting him dead. And what does God do? 
while he's on that cross, while they're gloating over his death, the one that they have caused, Jesus, in the middle of it all, says, I forgive you. Restoration. Now, the Bible says he could have come off that cross with a legion and taken everyone on, but he didn't. Instead, he said, I forgive you. Does that sound like a better story? It does to me. Sounds like a much better story to me because it's about healing and restoration. And what we see on that cross is a definitive revelation of God who is co-suffering, self-giving, radically forgiving. And we see a decisive victory over the powers of sin and Satan and death. It's all defeated through forgiveness, through love, through grace, and then ultimately through the resurrection. Sin is forgiven and death is defeated. You know, Jesus said, when the reason Jesus went down into death and then came back up again, remember Jesus told this story, no one can plunder a strong man's house unless he first enters a strong man's house, binds him, then he can plunder his goods, yes? Jesus entered death, he bound the strong man, He plundered his goods. We're told that he took captivity captive and led them away in his train. He went down into the grave and rescued everybody because the strong man was bound and death no longer has any hold over anyone because it couldn't keep him down and now it can't keep us down. All right? Death is soundly defeated as is sin through this incredible grace and forgiveness. Now there is no place in all creation where God's love is not. Even the psalmist understood that. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you are there. He fills everything in every way. Now, there's a part of this we need to talk about another day. What does that mean for when we die? I don't even dare to touch that today, right? Okay, I'm frightening you enough. But for right now, I'm trying to explain to you that this story takes the cross and it takes sin and it takes death very, very seriously, but in a much, much better way. And this is a story that says no matter how many times we turn from God, there is never a point where God turns from us. God's posture to us is not one of enmity, it's not one of hate, it is not a predisposition, a predisposition of anger towards us. Whenever we turn from God, God's only response is to come to us. And to call us back and to confront us with his radical love and his radical forgiveness. And we're quite able to turn away from that. We're quite able to resist it and to reject it. But God will not do this to us. God will do this to us. And he will pursue us to the grave if necessary. And there are two ways you can receive the love of God. One that heals and restores you. In another way that torments you. Remember it was Paul who said... Love your enemies and bless them, right? Do good to them because pray for them and bless them because when you do, what happens? You heap burning coals on their head. He wasn't literally saying go and heap burning coals on people's heads, right? And he wasn't saying it in some sort of sadistic way. Love people because that's going to really make it hurt. But you know what it's like when love is wrongly received? You know, if you've had someone that is your enemy, someone who's against you or whatever, or someone you don't really, really don't like, and they respond with nothing but kindness towards you, that makes you feel angry sometimes, doesn't it? Because you want to hate them. 
You want to think the worst of them. And so it is a torment for us, even though they mean it. They love you. They just want to bless you. They want to do the right thing, but it's received wrong. But if we stop that and we go, I'm not going to hate them. I'm going to believe that they mean this. Then we receive that love in a completely different way that becomes healing and restorative. That's the difference in this story. God's love never stops pursuing us. C.S. Lewis said he is the hound of heaven, right? He never stops pursuing us and he never stops loving us. But that love can hurt if we don't want to receive it in the right way. This, to me, is a better story. This is a better story that will lead to a bigger table, yeah? And so this morning I want to finish by saying, let's come to the table. Let's come and take communion together. Let's come and and celebrate this. This is God's invitation to everyone that he has never turned his back from you, that he loves you and that his grace for you is, is for you all the time, all the time, all the time, even today no matter where you are. So I welcome everyone to come and take this in your own time and we'll get the team back up. Thank you very much.